I actually one night went through my thousands of LinkedIn connections for who was a developer or a software engineer and tried to think who of these people would I be cool starting a company with. Welcome to Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vinson. And in this show, I talk to all sorts of professionals, whether they be corporate stars, business owners, or entrepreneurs, and get into a little bit of what they do. Today, I've got Nick Narrow on to talk about digital and mental health, his new app and his company, among many other things. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here, Nick. I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, we should have a good, good conversation. Awesome. So I guess let's get started by just, uh, so you work primarily in digital and mental health, kind of business development as well. How did you get into digital and mental health? You could kind of start wherever makes sense. Yeah, yeah, good question. When I graduated college, I did not have the typical like internship experience. Most business schools force you to go through your senior year. I started my first company as like an online apparel company my second year of school. Third year of school, joined another like student startup, uh, had my internship with them. And really, it was just like I'm the only employee of the company. And so when I graduated, I really didn't have the corporate opportunities a lot of kids that I was graduating with did because I went to school up at the University of Akron in Ohio. Okay. And so being in Ohio, it's a lot of traditional corporations that are up there and I didn't have the traditional background. And so when I graduated, I had a couple of different uh, internship opportunities instead of full time. And one of those was with a luxury skincare company that we actually did a project with in one of my classes senior year to create a whole big marketing campaign for them. My group won, so I got the role. And after I was in that like digital marketing role in the skincare company, I was meeting with a mentor to kind of go through some of the like entrepreneurial questions that you have, because it was three of us in this skincare company. And eventually he was like, hey, you know, are you learning everything you want to? Do you want to learn more? And I was like, I'm so hungry for doing something other than this right now. And he's like, hey, I got a company down in Florida. Do you want to come interview for it? And like, three and a half weeks later, I was moving into my apartment in Orlando. Wow. And that happened to be a telehealth and patient engagement company. So that was where I dove right into virtual care, the digital health world. And our primary clients were really mental health organizations. So it was a lot of building like video visit strategies and programs with these mental health organizations. And just that was about four years ago now. So describe that whole thing a little bit, telehealth, I guess, in general as an industry and and what you mean by video visit. Yeah, so... Telehealth has really been around for like a few decades, and I think that surprises a lot of people. Um, it started out really actually like within the hospital setting itself and slowly graduated to like, you know, email conversations between patients and doctors, phone call conversations. And now, you know, over the past really probably 10 to 15 years, the actual like video visit almost like think about a more secure version of a FaceTime or a Skype with your healthcare provider. Gotcha. And that's really what we were doing was we did not have any providers of our own. We were just selling the technology to that provider. So instead of you going into the office, you would schedule a virtual visit. You would get your texts and email reminders leading up to the appointment. But it was time for the appointment. You would just click on a link in your text. It would pull up a video right on your phone, and then you'd be chatting virtually. So really just helping all these kind of 
mental health and, and other health organizations break into the digital space and reach more people. Yeah, exactly. And video visits was a huge part of that, especially once the pandemic happened. Yeah. Everybody had to get it. But then it's like people don't realize, well, if people aren't coming in. How are you going to get their insurance, all their medical histories? How are you going to schedule people online now? So it was a lot of the technology that kind of wrapped around these video visits. Very cool. What were some of the biggest challenges when you were getting started with that? How did you kind of bridge the gap of maybe, you know, just how new of a thing this was for all these companies? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I I knew almost nothing about healthcare when I walked into that role. Wow. I mean, I think I scheduled my own like dentist appointment at that yeah. point in my life, and like that was about getting it. Getting my wisdom teeth removed, but I, I mean, I didn't really know how health insurance worked. You know, the difference between Medicare and Medicaid at the time, and so for me, it was a, one a lot of getting up to speed with healthcare. But before the pandemic, telehealth had a pretty slow growth rate because every state had different regulations and policies around how much insurance had to reimburse for a telehealth visit if they had to reimburse for it at all. So a lot of organizations were just calling us for us to like educate them. Can we get paid on this? Can we do these appointments and get paid by insurance for this? And then as soon as the pandemic happened, you know, the president was like, all right, everybody, you've got to pay for telehealth visits. And then it was like CEOs calling me at 6.30 a.m. Hey, I need to buy, you know, 50 grand of licenses today. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. What were some of the biggest mental health challenges that you saw during the pandemic? It sounds like this is kind of right in line with when the pandemic was starting is when you were getting started with this and kind of, you know, as terrible as the pandemic was, it brought us a lot of great technology and kind of a great time to be getting started in that. It sounds like what were some of the biggest challenges facing mental health? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of challenges that people went through in the really around the first year of the pandemic too and there was so much like uncertainty about how this would play out and even just in the first couple months one i mean the impact on first responders is unreal where i mean health systems are still seeing it today where the burnout among physician and nurses is to a point where you have these systems now offering five digit signing bonuses because they are so hungry to get more staffing and you know nurses working around the clock you know, they're away from their family and if, when they go back to their family they're probably sleeping in their garage because they don't want to be with the rest of their family and possibly get them sick with covid yeah well now you have the kids and the uh, significant other who now is getting to spend time with their spouse or with their parent uh then you see kids they're not actually going to school and you have if you are a 10th grader when the pandemic started now you're probably going into college without ever having a real high school experience. And so you went from, you know, playing on the playground in eighth grade to now you are an 18 year old, you're going to have alcohol thrown at you in college. And do you know what it's like to be a social setting as more of a mature teenager? Same thing all the way on the other end of the age group, you have folks that if you were born 2018, 2017, and now you're a first grader, second grader, this is your first time really ever even getting out in front of people that you remember. So the the mental health impacts of COVID we're going to see for decades to come. Yeah, really just a huge lack of social interaction is kind of the root of it, it sounds like. I mean, yeah, the big impact on social interaction. And then it's a, a little bit of just the fear it instilled in people of like, how is this going to impact myself, the people around me, a lot of people lost loved ones too. And so uh, yeah, long time to come. Yeah. So one thing I definitely wanted to get into, we we're kind of talking off air a little bit about you 
having a personal experience. I'd like to kind of talk about your personal mental health experience. And I think that goes a lot into like why you bring so much passion into the space. Yeah. Growing up, uh, I had a father who was a police officer. My mom worked in the government. And so I was a very goody two shoes kid because that's yeah. what I was going Out of necessity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was the kid where my friend's moms loved me because I knew I would never do anything wrong. <laughs> I was never scheming. And yeah, go over to Nick's house. He's great. <laughs> <laughs> and when I got into to high school, um, again, like I, I had never seen anyone my age really drink until I went on college visits for track. And track was one of the things that really kind of saved me in high school because I was an elite pole vaulter, won states, went to nationals for it. And that was where I found my like friend group really in high school. And so I started to develop some of that social anxiety because I didn't really get a ton of those kind of like wild friendships in high school, or I didn't really get to explore myself enough in high school because I was so so focused focused. on track. And then also a little bit nervous about if I do step out of line, like what are the consequences going to be, not only from my parents, but from an athletic point of view, like if I get caught drinking at 17, is that going to, you know, destroy my possibility of getting scholarships? Yeah. And so when I got to college, I went to the University of Tennessee. It It was my dream school and really good track program or really good pole vault program okay yeah and when i got there it was you know boom you're on the track team we had i think like 35 freshmen in our class for the track team which was huge wow yeah and was living with three other guys um my immediate roommate loved the the two other guys were partiers and i mean that's great for them, but it was so new to me. I didn't know how to be comfortable being so close to that. Mm -hmm. And so I really started to isolate myself. And by the time it got to be like the end of September, had been on campus for two months at this point, I just hadn't developed the close friendships because I didn't really know how to at that point in that type of social environment. So it was literally like my 18th birthday. I decided to transfer away from Tennessee. Didn't talk to my parents about it beforehand or like, Really, like, I think one or two people knew I was even considering it before I went and told the head coach, like, I just don't think this place is for me. And yeah. looking back at that, like, that was definitely my social anxiety leading to a decision that I really didn't have to make. So I ended up going to the University of Akron. I what drew you there? In pole vault again. They gotcha. had a, in 2015, they had the world champion. Wow. Uh, okay. Jumped like 19-8. And when I did my official visit, got to spend the weekend with him. And it really wasn't a school that I was that excited about when I was in high school because it was Akron, Ohio. It was cold. I wanted to go somewhere warm. Yeah. But I took one of my official visits there because I could get academic money. I was going to get athletic money. And they had a great program. So I was like, I have to check this out. And, the and it worked out at the end. You're in Florida yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So when I got there, I remember on the drive up there, I was like, you know what? I'm going to totally reinvent myself. I'm going to be the person everybody loves. And then that's an awful yeah. mindset. <laughs> like, then you really lose sense of who yeah. you are. And then it became like really March of my freshman year of college. And like track was just not something that I, I now saw as like I'm going pro. At Tennessee, even still the training, I was obsessed with. But when we got to Akron, it was like, we're going to be training for five hours, but it only felt productive for like an hour and a half, two hours. So mm. it felt like I was wasting a lot of time. Gotcha. And I started to get really into some of my business classes. Okay. So I was like, I'm going to leave track, go into the business school more, totally lost my identity, not having track in my life. 
you have to find a whole new friend group then because sure. your track friends are doing their thing. And that's when my mental health really went downhill. The social anxiety came back up again. The fall semester of my second year of school, I went to, I think, like five out of 30 in my finance classes and like scraped by with a C minus. Wow. And in high school, I was the kid that got like one B in all of high school. Mm-hmm. So the C minus was like totally out of character. Devastating, probably, yeah. And the, the social anxiety and that isolation really led to some bad depression where I'm I'm up at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night, like hoping, you know, something terrible happens to me because I just couldn't do it any longer. Wow. And went to our campus counseling. Well, I didn't go. I had some friends say, hey, you know, maybe you should go Mm -hmm. (laughs) talk to somebody. So I called the campus counseling center and they were like, hey, thanks for calling. We'll see you in six weeks. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? I live a second from campus, six weeks. And they're like, well, we're just so busy. And it's true. October is the busiest month for college campus counseling centers because you have everybody who gets on campus in September. They have all these high expectations, doesn't really work out. And October is that month where everyone finally says, I need help for this. Right after midterms in many yeah. cases probably yeah, yeah that too it's kind of like a a very enlightening point of the semester for people sometimes yeah it's like sure. oh i am not as prepared as i thought i was i you might get blindsided by something so that can be a really yeah. tough time I, I never would have thought of that but that makes a lot of sense yep and so i, I mean i didn't know what else to do so i waited the six weeks uh, talked to the psychologist at that first intake appointment and she was like yeah you seem kind of anxious i don't really know about depressed and i mean i'm a 19 year old male at the time grew up with parents like that of course I'm afraid to really tell this woman how I'm really feeling on my college campus and so that really hit when she what year was this this would have been fall of 2016 okay yeah so not really in the global conversation as much back then either yeah right and so she was like, yeah, you could start therapy if you want in two months. And I was like, two wow. months? I just waited six weeks. Well, the problem was it was now, I think, like the beginning of November by the time I actually got seen. Mm-hmm. So then you think you have Thanksgiving break in colleges. You have the winter break. And so they weren't going to start accepting new people until we got back in January. And the, But she was like, well, what do you know about meds? And I was like, I know I have friends on meds. And mm-hmm. she was like, well, you can go to the other side of campus. And I think it was like literally two days later, I'm walking out of CVS with a six-month prescription of an antidepressant and 30 generic Xanax. Jeez. After not even having seen a yeah. mental health professional yet, really, aside yeah, from I just guess. like – well, I, I guess they are, but like not having seen like a an actual like therapist to – to take you into personalized sessions. Right. I had one intake appointment with a psychologist and she was like, hey, we have our actual like healthcare facility for patients on the other side of campus. There you can talk to a physician. Great. They can prescribe. But yeah, I had gotten all of this medication without any type of care plan with a therapist that was going to be ongoing. And I was so upset with that process. I never went to that. Yeah. So now here I am on campus, have six months of an SSRI, 30 Xanax, and never talk to another clinician again. Wow. They had no clue if I got the meds, if I was taking them, if I took them all at once or what. Jeez. And like, thank goodness, like four and a half months later, things started to just kind of improve in my life. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to wean myself off of these, which is a terrible idea. Don't do that. Um, but I got really lucky where the timing after that just had kind of worked out where I had a professor who was super impactful in my life walk in. He introduced me to someone who's now a lifelong friend, going to be one of my groomsmen. So I got really lucky with how things played out after that to honestly keep me alive. Do you think that the meds kind of helped you get back on track or do you think that it was other things? 
That's a really good question because, like I said, I was only on them for four and a half months. and They typically take a while to kick in, right? Yeah, like they definitely take a couple of weeks, if not a little bit longer to kick in. And so I, I do think it played a role in me being more open to my spring semester because mm-hmm. um, I've been on them for a couple of months or maybe a month and a half by the time the semester started. Maybe helped you catch the initial steam that yeah. you did. Like if I, if I didn't have them, I don't know if I would have put myself in the opportunities to actually find things that I enjoyed. And so I definitely think it was a good Kickstarter for me. That's interesting. I like that perspective. I, I mean, I don't know much about them myself, but it's just like, it's cool that you can kind of find that either way, whether it's long-term or short-term. Yeah. Very cool. What is the biggest thing that you recommend someone do if they find themselves in this position, having kind of gone through it and looking back on it now? Because I think that's a very prevalent thing, especially for something as new as the college experience for people. It's probably the first time you're out on your own in many case, in most cases yeah. and you're just in a totally new environment you might be in a different state like you were and it's you're just really figuring life out on your own yeah it's a really tough position to be struggling with your mental health in college because if you go to your campus counseling center and they tell you you're going to be on this big long wait and you feel like you're you're at the end it can be really tough if your parents are out of town or if your parents aren't the type of people you have emotional conversations with or they're just not really that present in your life to where they're going to make an impact and and help you improve. And so it can feel like you are very alone in just finding that help. And so the one thing that I would say is if you are somebody in college and you're struggling with mental health is there there are so many resources that are out there that can help and it whether it's going to your counseling center and if they tell you they're on a wait ask them what other resources are available that are either local or national where you could maybe do like the video visit type of thing to therapists that maybe are or are not local but still licensed in your state yeah i mean if you think about it even if that's not going to be the best thing like the best most helpful thing for you in the long term maybe if you prefer in-person visits it's got to be at least something if you're not going to get seen for six weeks but yep. you could get seen video wise and really just get kick-started and push in the right direction it could be a difference maker yeah and i i was in a really unfortunate position because i didn't look for any other resources because i had no clue about like what health insurance would cover mm-hmm. right now a lot of health insurances cover mental health services at least to some extent so if you are in college at least ask your parents what type of health insurance do i have do you have your own health insurance card that you took with you to college Mm -hmm. there's a number on there that you can probably call and say hey i'm ready to look for a mental health provider can you help me with this or you can go to the website that's on your health insurance card to look out for this Um, But if you start following like therapists and stuff on Instagram and TikTok, you're going to start getting hit with advertisements from these mental health companies. And so that's one of the things that I would say be very careful about is right now, Instagram, TikTok, social media in general is trying to play this role in the mental health world where you have a lot of licensed and unlicensed people talking about mental health. So something like very important for anyone watching this is I'm not licensed. I've spent a lot of time in this field. So Mm -hmm. I talk about my experience. I talk about what I've heard from other clinicians, but nothing that I say is from somebody who is licensed a therapist in any way. And so when you're on social media, be very careful about the accounts you are getting mental health advice from. 
uh, whether it's a clinician or not, because there's clinicians out there on social media where the vast majority of clinicians do not agree with what they say, but they've monetized a platform, they've created a community, and now they're continuing to figure out how to monetize on that crowd. Um, so be very careful about social media. Yeah. What are some things to look out for in that thing? Yeah, that's some a, red flags. That's a, that's a really good question. We're actually writing a blog on this now for Haley. Um, and so we were talking about this with our head of mental health, who is a doctorate in social work. She's a licensed oh, awesome. clinician. And one, I mean, always check the bio. Do they have a active license? Do they mm -hmm. have an actual practice? I think it's, it is good to look out that they are actually practicing because somebody might keep an active license, but they don't actually have an active practice where they're consistently seeing patients. I think that's something that's good to show, just like that repetition in, mm -hmm. in their field. Uh, there's certainly great clinicians that might not be in private practice. They've gone into consulting or helping other clinicians go into private practice. The other thing that I would look out for uh, once you know they are licensed is look at their content and how like generic do they get with it. It's very common to see on TikTok, if you have these four things, you have ADHD. No, mm -hmm. you're a human. You probably do one of those things every now and then. It doesn't yeah. mean you have a mental health diagnosis. So and in very, reality, it's probably way more complicated. Exactly, exactly. So much more complicated and complex. So be very careful about content that's prescriptive. Mm. And then ask other clinicians and professionals on social media about that clinician. Or look for, you know, if you follow clinician A, look for similar type of content from clinician B, C, and D. If they're all saying similar stuff, it's probably pretty accurate. But if there's this one therapist that has a ton of followers, but no other therapist is posting similar content, they're probably more so going for the followers than making sure they stay within like evidence-backed research. They might just be going for shock value or something inflammatory even. I, I, th I think it's more about the influencer thing of let me put something out into the world that can resonate with the most amount of people possible. Mm -hmm. They still have goodwill behind it. They still want to help people, but mental health is very complex. And so when you put a very generic message out there, it becomes incredibly important that people interpret it the right way. Mm. And we can't be a therapist for ourselves. Right. We can we can start doing some like grounding exercises, participate in better things, do research on our own, but we cannot be our own therapist. Yeah. So it's very important that those generic statements we we don't take as I know exactly what this therapist wants me to get out of the statement. Yeah. So kind of talking about that social media vein, we were talking a little bit off air about how you kind of use LinkedIn as your primary social yep. media. What was behind that choice initially? Yeah, honestly, that was when I started the telehealth company and didn't really know much about healthcare because I got into sales. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, one way that I can start to learn more about healthcare is just by connecting with the executives of the people that I want to be selling to. In the sure. Future. And so I started to build out a lot of my LinkedIn network with these like health system, hospital, mental health org, C-suites, and started just posting every day about sales stuff, started connecting with other sales professionals. And over time, it's just kind of grown to where I started to see how like posting on LinkedIn frequently helped me build this personal brand. Yeah. Like, I even have friends who like will make fun of like, oh, you're a LinkedIn influencer. And I'm like, well, yeah, no, it's got me this far. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just kind of stuck with it. I think now I've got like 11,000 connections or followers mm -hmm. or something like that. So it's been pretty good. Yeah, it's cool. I actually found you through LinkedIn. I had another guest on the podcast, Manny Chambliss, who'd started a couple months ago, who 
he came on to talk about kind of his experience with LinkedIn and he, I guess, was following you or had seen you and he kind of like showed me your profile <laughs> and like recommended you. So that's how I found you. That's awesome. It's uh, It provides all kinds of opportunities. It's very cool. It, I mean, it really does. I mean, that's when I went from that telehealth company to another digital health company, I got that because of my LinkedIn. Like I never really sent them a resume or anything. Mm-hmm. They just knew what I had done because of what I posted about and the accomplishments I share on LinkedIn. Yeah. I actually, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before or not, but that digital marketing job that I mentioned mm-hmm. that I had before, before I kind of got into all this, um, I got completely off of LinkedIn. I just got a DM from the, the uh, HR manager about an open position and I was looking for one at the time and doing some freelance stuff on the side and got this awesome job just through LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. I, I Right now, because of the market, there's so many people that are looking to switch industries or in Florida, like I know a lot of teachers that are trying to get out of teaching because it's a bad situation. And I, I mean, I tell them like, LinkedIn is a great place to do it. Yeah. Um, so like, I even like, sent out like an ebook a couple months ago of like this is how i landed jobs with or not job but interviews with everybody from like nike disney amazon google all through linkedin Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's a really hot platform right now and for great reason so that's kind of help you helped you build your personal brand when did you decide to sounds like you started with sales you mentioned when did you decide to start shifting your talk to the mental health direction and digital health direction yeah you know when i joined um, panda health which was the company that i was at before i started my own we helped health systems procure digital health solutions and there i saw that was a better time to start talking about what I knew about the digital health world because our company needed to look credible that we mm. knew what the best solutions were to suggest to these organizations. Yeah, And so because of my experience in telehealth and digital patient intake and stuff during the pandemic, I had enough of a background to pull where I could start suggesting the right ways to implement telehealth or things to look out for. And that, I mean, very similar to why I started talking about sales on LinkedIn, started talking about digital health because the target market that I was trying to reach they were the CIOs of health systems. They didn't care about selling software. They, they cared about the technology that their health system used. And so that's mm-hmm. what I started to focus on. And when you start to get into suggestions, things to look out for, the do's and don'ts, that type of content does resonate on LinkedIn because people are looking to thought leaders for advice there. Um, so yeah, it started working. So you're, you're working for Panda Health. Panda Health was the name, right? Yep. So you're working for Panda Health, kind of doing this, building your brand on LinkedIn and kind of helping with your daily efforts in the company through that. How do you eventually decide to start your own company? Because you have your own company now with your co-founder and you've been doing that for a little while now. How did you end up deciding to do that? Yeah, so that all kicked off in October of 2021. My now fiance and I, we were in Denver visiting one of my buddies from college, the friend I actually mentioned earlier who really helped me when I was down at Akron. And she came out of a work meeting in tears. Um, Before the pandemic, she had a job she absolutely loved, got laid off. The job that she had until she could get back there was a little bit rougher. And when she came out of this meeting, she was in between therapy appointments herself. And it reminded me of my experience in college. And there is just such a gap if you are in between appointments, you're on a wait list, or you're too hesitant to reach out for help in the first place. And we realized that gap was kind of being solved by Instagram and TikTok, but that's not always the best case, as as we talked about. 
Sure. And so then I just started to brainstorm of like, how can we bring all of these like free to access mental health resources, but put it in a mental health environment that's easy to use and easy to access. And I started playing around with ideas for like a clinician content creator platform, a new form of like social media and asked a mentor about some of the ideas. I started doing a ton of like financial modeling in Excel that if you are thinking about starting a company, do not waste your time doing that (laughs) because you're going to be wrong. Um, I can attest to the fact that as a business owner myself, pretty much everything you think is going to happen is going to be wrong. (laughs) That's kind of the process of being a business owner. Exactly. And (laughs) So then, that, that, I mean, that was like October of 21 when all that kind of started, playing around with pitch decks and stuff, November, and I asked my college roommate at Akron about if he was open to hearing about the idea and if he felt like he had the skill set to be a developer for it. I had a good chat with him, and he was like, I don't know how to do this, but I know somebody who is incredibly smart an entrepreneur at heart, you should connect with them. Hmm. So connected with this guy, um, he lives out in Kansas City, he's my co-founder, Michael, and we like kind of instantly hit it off, chatted about mental health for a bit, our kind of beliefs on entrepreneurship, how to run a company, culture, all that kind of stuff. And after like a couple times of meeting, we were like, all right, let's do this. So then like January 1, we officially kicked off as a Delaware Corporation. Really, that was so we didn't have to worry about taxes and everything for 2021 after incorporating for, you know, two weeks in December. So it started out January 1st. um, And I was still at Panda during all of this. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of great, you know, Panda is my 8.30 to 5.30. And then I'm spending four or five hours in the evening working on all of this like ideation and and where we could take this idea and it got to the point where by march 5th was when we actually launched the haley website for the first time so it's for haley.com f-o-r-h-a-l-e-y.com and did not quit yet wasn't part-time yet still full-time and this was a lot of like uh, interviews with clinicians i think i probably interviewed by now it's like probably 200 but by the time we launched it was at least like 40 or 50. wow and clinicians are licensed people they've got a lot of background and so we were paying out of pocket like 30 to 50 dollars to chat with these folks for half an hour at a time wow that's interesting so you were kind of just paying like their what would be their hourly rate it wasn't even their hourly rate yeah most of them are going to make more than 100 bucks an hour but we were like look i'm young startup i'm paying for this out of my own money i'll give you 50 bucks to chat with me for half an hour and a lot of them would Um, yeah and a lot of this was because i joined twitter Mm-hmm. And I was like, a lot of therapists are on Twitter. If I can ingrain myself in the therapist Twitter community and make friends with them, figure out how they talk, what they think about startups, then I can make sure I'm on their good side. Yeah. And like, even to this day, can help I, you approach them and everything. Yeah. And I have I have therapists that I've probably talked about like Haley more with than anybody. And like, I know I can DM them and they'll answer a question for me. And it got to the point where we got to about. 50 therapists on our platform at the end of the first month because for them it was kind of like another content distribution platform they could create an account upload a video or an article and then we brought on a head of mental health right away because we're like well we're starting a mental health company neither of us are clinicians 
where you are both white males. We do not have a diverse background or perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so we brought in an incredible head of mental health. She's a DSW, LCSW from New York. She owns her own private practice. She's been a professor before. Incredibly great person to bring on. What drew her to this mission? What, like, how did you, how did you kind of get her to decide to do that? What led her to want to do that? Yeah, good question. So, you know, one of the things we posted like a head of mental health role on LinkedIn and like within like an hour got like 35 applications and I was like, all right, I'm just going to turn this off. Right yeah. now. <laughs> and, You're like, all right, it worked too well. <laughs> yep. And we, we interviewed a bunch of them. And one of the things that really, you know, attracted us to Judy as a candidate was her enthusiasm for changing the mental health space and like mental health as a media and content play Mm. and from the beginning she showed a lot of initiative in the conversations that we had to take the effort to look at what Haley was and where we wanted to go and as a clinician herself you know she sees a lot of value in making sure that if you are that college kid who you don't know where to go the value and maybe you are you know, an immigrant from Haiti, you're going to a school in New York, you maybe you don't actually speak English that well, it's your second language, where are you going to go for mental health advice? Are you going to navigate this when your family's all the way back in another country? And so the importance of increasing this access was something that she absolutely loved. And so it was super easy decision to bring her on. Just a complete alignment of yep. mission, vision, everything. Yep, which is incredibly important if you're starting a company because that's really what keeps you together because you're not going to be making money for a while. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, alignment on mission and vision is so important because if it's not money that ends a startup, it's issues between the founders. Absolutely. And so Judy came on, I think, by the either the end of March or the beginning of April was when we brought her on. And... When we started, we started to get to a point where, like, I really had to start using my LinkedIn to chat, chat about Haley and just talking about it on Twitter, Instagram, like everything. And by this time, Panda didn't know that I was doing Haley. Um, I actually switched roles halfway during my time at Panda from recruiting health systems to join Panda to recruiting digital health companies to join Panda. And when I started on the digital health side, I told my boss, like, hey, like, I'm kind of flirting with this company idea. I just want you to know that I'm doing this outside of work hours. He was totally cool with it. But if you are thinking about starting a company and you have a full-time job, it is incredibly important to look at the contract that you signed when you joined that company because there are often clauses that if you don't tell them what inventions you are working on they own them wow yeah i wouldn't have thought of that and so i had to be very upfront like hey this is my thing i'm doing outside of work hours and they were cool with it and then it got to the point where it just started to take so much of my time um where i told panda hey i have to go to part-time Mm-hmm. And it was kind of an agreement where, like, they knew it was becoming, you know, more important to me. We were actually having some growth. And the general agreement that we had was don't quit cold turkey on us. Yeah. And I was like, that's totally Because cool. you'd become such a vital part of the organization yeah. and what they were doing. Yep. And I was like, I totally understand. Like, I wouldn't want somebody to do that to me either. So I said, I think it was around, like, Easter, where I was like, it's time to start thinking about me as part-time. Mm-hmm. 
we made that agreement. I went to 20 hours a week, was part-time for about a month. And then they told me like, hey, you know, we have to bring somebody in full-time for this. We hired somebody. And then I went to full-time working on Haley. So there it was a go. very, very slow progression into going full-time on this. And I think that's ideal. It, it is because as a founder, you're always romantic about your idea and mm-hmm. how valuable it's going to be. And so if someone's starting a company, one, make sure you have a co-founder make sure you have an actual product and really understand how long you can go without making revenue and paying yourself and where that is eventually going to come from. So if you can get your first customers before you quit your job, great. If you're having VC conversations when you're in a job or you're about to leave a job, great. But that is something, especially for younger founders, if you don't have like, you know, seven figures in your bank account Mm -hmm. and investments that you can live off of forever, do not quit your job until you at least have a founder, a product, and customers that love what you're doing. Yeah, it's probably going to cause unnecessary pressure. Maybe at worst cause you to make the wrong decisions under the, the wrong kind of criteria. I couldn't agree more with the co-founder. I have two other partners in my company, and it's been a massive part of mm-hmm. our success so far, I think. What is it for you that makes you say, make sure you have a co-founder? What is it to you personally? You know, I don't necessarily think you have to have a co-founder to start a company unless there's skill sets that the company demands that you don't have. And so for me, it was, well, heck, I want to create a website and an app, and I have no clue how to write a single line of code. Mm -hmm. And so why in the world would I quit my day job to start a company if I don't even know where the first line of code is going to come from? I have no clue how long it's going to take me to get to that product. And so if the company that you want to start requires skill sets that you definitely don't have, make sure you have that person in there to fulfill that before you even think about quitting your job. (laughs) Yeah. I think in the same vein there, make sure you're not selecting a co-founder just because you're interested in the same thing and don't definitely don't make a co-founder out out of someone that has the exact same skill set as you. It's just not going to really do much for you. You should always have complementary skill sets. Yeah. I I a hundred percent agree. And the point you made right before that, you know, don't just make a co-founder out of somebody who agrees with what you're doing. It's, it's almost, yeah. Aligning on the mission and the vision is important, but when venture capitalists and these startup accelerators look at founders to invest in, one of the questions they most commonly ask is what projects have the two or three of you worked on before together? Because they want to see that you can actually work on something, produce something without fighting, hating each other and, and abandoning it. Yeah. And that was one of the struggles Michael and I had because we did not have that background. But we've found that we can work tremendously well together with a lot of communication. Um, but that's a, a big thing for founders is if you are looking for that co-founder, spend time with them to make sure this is somebody you are going to basically enjoy almost being like a second significant other. Yeah. And so right before we launched, or it might have been right after we launched the Haley website, um, Michael and his fiance came out to Orlando to spend time with my fiance Haley and I. So that way we could have that in-person time together, make sure we were aligned, just get to know each other on a little bit more of a deeper level as co-founders. I was going to ask, I, we got sidetracked on something else, but I was going to ask if Haley was your fiance's yeah. name. I kind of figured with like all the context of everything yep. and kind of the, the story of how you started. I think that's really cool though. What does she think of that being the name of the company? So it actually wasn't at first. Okay. Um, I had an idea for 
just one of these like really large mental health provider type companies right when COVID started. And I bought up a bunch of domains around Therami. Mm, okay. Uh, and so that was going to be it's the original idea. I was like, hey, I've already got, you know, a couple of domains around this. And I was talking to one of my mentors and she liked the name, but she wasn't sold on it. And so one day I just sent her a text um, and I was like, what do you think of this Haley? Yeah. And she was like, I love it. It's like, it's an innocent name, like yeah. soft sounding, like it just works. For it does. Health. Yeah. There's something about it. Yeah. I think that is it. It's soft sounding. And it's just like, it's approachable. Yep. It and feels very quick. approachable. Yep. Yeah. Was that, so you come up with the name, um, kind of going back to the co-founder thing. I did want to ask on that as well. What are, you kind of mentioned like making sure that you agree and everything. You spent some time together. What are some ways that you think someone getting into that position where they, they are exploring a co-founder, what are some things that they can do to kind of like work through that process if it is someone new? To maybe, I don't want to say shortcut it because yeah. I don't think you should shortcut it, but what are some things that you could do to really be intentional with that and what worked for you? So the first place that I looked for a co-founder was people that I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually like one night went through like my thousands of LinkedIn connections for who was a developer or a software engineer wow. and tried to think who of these people would I be cool starting a company with. Yeah. And I actually did the same thing for like a financial co-founder and ended up realizing you just really don't need one of those from the very beginning. And that's why I ended up reaching out to one of my college roommates because I saw he made the move from like aerospace to software development. Mm-hmm. And then it became a second connection or second connection in LinkedIn terms. It was somebody that yeah. he knew really well. And so I think if you are looking for a co-founder, that's what I would start out with. Start I mean, with I, your network. I posted on Facebook for who is a software developer and open to chatting and LinkedIn. You, you just have to be like super transparent and vulnerable from the beginning that you want to start something mm-hmm. because the people that respond to those types of things are the people that you want to start a company with. The people They're proactive that, people. Yeah, the yeah. people that you have to like beg to start come start a company with you, and if they don't have an entrepreneurial background, maybe they're just not an entrepreneurial person. It's yeah. not going to fit their personality style. You even if they did come on board, you're going to be dragging them along the whole way. Maybe you never know. And yeah. so, for a co-founder, you want that initiative. And I asked Michael a lot of questions. One around like why he was interested in mental health. Did he have the technical capacity to build this? I asked Martin if Michael had the technical capacity to build it. Martin was your initial connection. Yeah, he was my college roommate. Mm -hmm. And so it was a little bit of like I had the social proof with Martin for Mm -hmm. for Michael. Um, Sure. And then it was a lot of – A trusted recommendation source. Yeah, exactly. And then it was a lot of that conversation with Michael around – where do you want your career to go? Why are you interested in startups? How do you think a company should be run? Like what's DEI mean to you and culture? And we we aligned on a lot. It was very apparent that both of us were open to throwing ideas back and forth at each other in a respectful way. Nice. And that's one of the most important things for co-founders is being able to share ideas without immediately putting them down and then knowing where your strengths are. One of I think to take that one, the first point, even a little bit further, being able to completely disagree respectfully yes. on certain things. A- abs- absolutely. And that was one of the things 
that Michael and I understood right away was I have a business development and a digital health background. You have a development and engineering background. And so when it comes to development and engineering, if we disagree, you win. Mm -hmm. That's your background. I'm not going to step over that. Yeah. Um, And that was something that I think really helped us out as founders from the very beginning. And if you are open to taking that back seat when you are not the expert, that's super important for a founder because you want to hire smart people around you mm-hmm. and let them do the job. Yeah, you always want to be hiring smarter people. And if you that's a that's not an easy thing for people to take a back seat, especially if you are like an entrepreneur. A lot of times that comes with, you know, just very high confidence. You a lot of confidence in yourself in particular and it can be very difficult to take a back seat. How, what are some things that you've found work for you at being able to do that? It's, it's almost like you have to develop the muscle memory Mm -hmm. um, because when you are a founder, it's something that you're so passionate about. You romanticize the idea and the vision where it can be very easy to want to step into everything. And so as it's like a muscle you train, you have to be willing to take that step back and constantly just be asking questions to give yourself more information rather than assuming because when you're building a product and you're building this vision it's very easy to assume what a customer would want how long it would take to develop something how well this is going to turn out and so when you start to surround yourself with people delegation is incredibly important and when you make that decision to delegate they own it and so i read a book I don't know if it was like the CEO within, but it talked about the idea of uh, DRIs, which is the directly responsible individual. And so from the very beginning, I made a sheet with probably like 20 different topics and said, is Michael or I the directly responsible individual for this? And so when it fell in a topic where he was listed as the DRI, he would win. Mm. It fell on a topic where I was, I would win. Yeah. But what was important was that, well, you have to have a backup because what happens if that person goes on vacation? Yeah. Well, then if I'm the backup for something or he's the backup for something, we have to be willing to listen to each other and understand why that person is coming from there. And again, I think when we brought in Judy, great. Now we have a whole other third perspective. Now she became the DRI for different topics. And that's something that I think is incredibly important for founders in the you know, now this 2022 world and moving forward is you have to realize you are going to have assumptions about the world that are absolutely wrong because of your own biases and background. So, so important. And talk about her name is Judy, you said, right? Not only is that a, a third set of a, a third person to take on some of the DRI roles, but also probably a mediator for when you're both having a difficult time disagreeing on something. And she could kind of step in as a third person, a third party. I think it's probably good whether that person is a part of the company or just a mentor or something to have that kind of third perspective sometimes when you feel like you need to absolutely and the great thing about judy is she's a licensed mental health she's Mm -hmm. a licensed clinical social worker so she's a licensed mental health clinician and for her it's great because when it comes to the dri of some of the things that she's responsible for michael and i get zero say yeah (laughs) because we do not have the license we we do not have the expertise and credentials that she does and that's great because we can give her you know the final say on a Mm -hmm. lot of things and so there are product conversations that we get into um we like we have a lot of stuff about Haley we can talk about, but there's certain times where Michael and I are talking about something and we're like, 
well, let's just ask Judy. Like, what's the right yeah. way? To, what's the right way to do this? What's the sure. most mental health beneficial way to do this? And then she can come in. And that should always be kind of the value you fall back on anyway. Yep. What were some of the biggest challenges and some of the biggest successes as you started building out the actual website? Yeah. We've made quite a pivot uh, from where we first started. The original idea was to create this content distribution platform for clinicians where they could create an account, have almost like a little like directory listing about them, who they are as a therapist, potential clients could reach out to them through it and use all of their content as a way to say, oh, you know, Judy's made five videos on, you know, relationships. Am I, am I going to vibe with her before I reach out to her as a therapist? Mm. Because a lot of people nowadays, like, date therapists. Yeah. They talk to two, three, four, if they have that privilege to make sure you have that kind of, like, vibe with a therapist. And the therapeutic alliance between a client and a therapist is one of the most, if not the most important indicator of the success of therapy. So would you recommend that kind of dating process, if you want to call it that? If you have the privilege where you can afford, you have the time to do it, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And if you can find information about those therapists online, all the better. If they all have Instagrams or websites where they're making blogs and stuff, go read that stuff. Yeah. Um, Is it something that you agree with? And so that was like the first iteration of Haley. And the challenge was was because we were pushing for content that gave more context than an Instagram reel or a TikTok, we were getting five to 10 minute videos or you know thousand plus word articles. Therapists are very busy people. Mm-hmm. And so they might create one piece of content on a Friday, upload it, and then do the same thing next Friday. That's not a social media platform if you have you know your 20 to 30% of your users uploading once a week. Yeah. And that is where in the summer, really around July, we made the decision to pivot to more of a search engine-like capability. So now, yes, we have 20% of our content is native, uploaded directly to Haley, but really 80% of our content, probably more now, actually comes from external sources around the internet where we've just identified this has been produced by a clinician, uh, it's a reputable source website. We pull that into our search engine, and so we can just take you right there, just index it. So now we don't necessarily have to have people upload it right to Haley, and we could go from 250 pieces of content to 1,500 as fast as we wanted. You could stop me here if this gets too into like kind of competitive adv- advantage and like company secrets, but could you get into that identify like the identification process a little bit and like how that indexing and everything works? Yeah. The, like identifying things that you want to be part of your database? Yeah. So this is something that we get asked by potential partners a lot because mm-hmm. if they are saying, hey, Haley's a good place to go, they want to know like, well, how do you judge what content to include? Yeah. What's the criteria? Right. And so one it is a licensed clinician, somebody that is working towards licensure and under supervision. So maybe it's somebody where when you become a therapist, you are in this like supervisory associate period until you get so many hours and then mm. you're like independently licensed. Yeah, so, reps if you want to call it, I guess. So we do let those people have a profile and make content on Haley if they are working towards licensure full time because you have a supervisor over you. The other people that we also accept is maybe they are a PhD 
in a field, but maybe they don't actively see patients, but then we're very careful about what type of content that is. Like it's not mm. really mental health advice, it's more like kind of like research focused. Yeah. And so that's one, is it really a credible source? Life coaches have a place in helping us. Uh, and I think career is a great place where life coaches can fall into, mm -hmm. but there are life coaches that step over the bounds into the mental health world where they do not have the credentials or expertise. And that is something that we are really strict about and making yeah. sure they do not have a spot to talk about that on our platform. So we do not have any content from non-licensed uh, individuals trying to give mental health advice. Uh, we do have some from like healthcare organizations, health systems that are, of course, massive. They have clinicians writing for them. The other piece is it's informative, but not prescriptive. So yeah. going back to the, if you have these four things, you have ADHD. We're not adding stuff. Like yeah. It's um, a resource to learn about all of everything under the umbrella and not, it's not your therapist for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's something to get you started probably. Yep. And then... One of the other things, like it's it's generally accepted by therapists, so it's not a licensed clinician who has the off the wall ideas. Yeah, um, those kind of goes back to what you were talking about before and your search. If you're finding someone on social media and they're they've got a giant following, but it's not being agreed upon mm -hmm. in general. Yep, so, you gotta have checks and balances and everything, right? Exactly, and and really the only other thing is that it's inclusive. Um, you know, mental health is something where it is so individual to our own experiences. Mm -hmm. And so we really care that all of the content on our platform is accepting and open to all of that. And so matter where your background is, no matter who you identify as or what your life preferences are, that you can find safe content for you on this platform and feel comfortable using it. Love so that. you mentioned this concept of a DRI or directly responsible individual for you know, repeating tasks and things that need to be done in the company. What are some things that you personally are the DRI for, for yeah. Haley? Yep. So for me, it's really, you know, some of like the annoying like finance and legal stuff that comes with being like the CEO. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's taxes, uh, I work with our attorneys on like we, I just was going back and forth with our attorney this week on trademarking the yep. Haley. So, I'm that guy in my company. Yeah. It's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's also really disappointing to see the, yeah. the bills that you owe a term. Yes. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that stuff is, like, it's annoying, but it's also, like, incredibly important. And so yeah. it's it's a great feeling when it's done. Like, we, oh, yeah. we went back and forth with the patent and trademark office this week on having the term Haley trademarked in, like, the self-care mental wellness field. And, like, and we're going to get it. So it's awesome that like we own the term Haley. And it you you said in the uh, mental health world, is it kind of trademark specifically into that space? Yeah. So trademarks are very industry specific. Okay. So like I can't go own Haley for like a restaurant, right? Um, because we don't operate that. Um, and so yeah, so we're going to own it in like the mental wellness and self-care field for a website that has content. Yeah. Um, and then the other stuff that I'm the DRI for falls around like business development partnerships and like kind of like the product map and ideation and the, the vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and Michael is very closely tied into that too. Like I would, I really at this point, I would say we share it because I can only come to a product vision point of view from a user 
experience where he can come to it from the actual technical sure. level. What's next to build? How is this going to be built the best? So we really share. And that's one of the things we communicate the most often about. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the things that he owns. Um, and everything development related, uh, the technology vendors that we have, he, he owns all of that. You know, whether we're using AWS or Google Cloud, what are apps built on top of? And then Judy, of course, owns all the stuff mental health related. Mm-hmm. So she is the DRI when it comes to the features and functions of the app. We should never have anything that's harmful to mental health. Yeah, and absolutely. So she she gets the final say on those features and functions before we hit live. That this is actually going to be beneficial, and hopefully, way before that, so we don't mm-hmm. waste our time building something that isn't. This is something that should be a part of it mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Yep. So you talked about the app a little bit. We haven't gotten into it too much. I wanted to talk a little bit about the decision to have an app because obviously you started with the website. Yep. Sounds like the website was going well by this point. And wh- how far in was the decision to make an app? Had you made that early on and just wanted to wait some time first? or? So it was a very conscious decision to not launch an app from yeah. the beginning. Um, a website was much lower barrier to entry. I can go right. to a URL anywhere. People don't want another app on their phone necessarily. And so a lot easier to make too. You could yeah. just, I mean, at the very lowest level, you could just hop onto a, like a Squarespace account and do it in like a day. Yep. If you're like a small business or something, I mean, yeah, much lower barrier to entry. Exactly. Um, and that's really why we started with the website because we could get a lot of feedback a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the initial website did take like two and a half months of custom development to build. Wow. Yeah. That was one of the biggest pieces of advice I got in our company. We were thinking about launching an app at one point and we were thinking about going straight into it. And that was the biggest piece of advice I got from someone who had actually worked in development before is they were like, do not start with an app because it's very difficult, very complex, very expensive to build an app. And if you launch with it, you have not gotten that feedback yet. You don't know what the app needs to be yet even. So you need to take the time to get that feedback at a lower level of risk before you hop right into it. Yep, exactly. And eventually we started hearing people being like, I just use this more if it was an app. Yeah. And, um, and social proof. Yeah. And it got to the point where it's, it's easier to add features and functions sometime in an app. Uh, it's, easier for the user to accept changes to the UI and UX in an app. And so we wanted to add some things that allowed us to increase our weekly and daily active users. Hmm. Because really, when we were a search engine, I hope somebody's not on our website every single day. Yeah, Because at that point, they probably should be seeking deeper levels of care, actively seeing a therapist. And so, yeah, maybe they come once every other week or they have an event where they start looking at mental health content and they stumble upon our website. Mm -hmm. And so from a business standpoint, how can we interact with these individuals that are looking for either self-care tips or mental health content? How can we get in front of them more? Yeah journaling, emotion tracking, doing things that are healthy to do daily, 
how can we add those into the experience? And by creating an app was a much easier way for us to do that for an end user than trying to create that on an actual website where they're creating an account that now has all of these new features and functions. And so people do a lot of that stuff on their phone rather than a computer. And so that's when it really made more sense to develop the app. Is part of the thought process behind some of those things that the app does kind of being able to dip your toes into some of the things you might start doing or exploring in therapy? Yes. So one of the things that we look at as our differentiator against other like self-care journaling type of apps is our relationships with the therapist community. And so when you are in therapy, you're often given grounding exercises, things that you can do if you get triggered to pull you out of those. And so as we start to look at adding those into the app, then yeah, we are really starting to build an app that it gets more ingrained into that experience of somebody who could be in therapy. I want to kind of go back to that disclaimer you gave earlier about not being a clinician yourself uh, before I ask this, but... Um, and I haven't said this on the podcast yet, but I'm actually in therapy myself. I really like that concept of grounding things, little exercises that you can do. And I've got one that I always go back to, and it's kind of a breathing exercise. My therapist taught me, what are some, some that you have really found that that help you a lot? Are there ones that you walk yourself through or kind of come back to personally? Yeah. Well, one, I mean, thank you for sharing that. Like of course, it's yeah. going to help somebody he- hearing another person say that they are in therapy and, and what's working for them. Box breathing is a great thing that you might be chatting about, actually. So the thing that I got taught is, um, I want to say it's four seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's four, seven, eight, I think. So it's, you do um, like, like a really deep, quick breath for like four seconds, like... <sighs> like kind of for four seconds and then you hold it for, I want to say seven and then you breathe out for eight. And it's, you do that like a few times over and over again, really helps you if you're kind of like getting anxious about something. That's kind of like where it came from for me. Like I, like I was getting anxious. Like I, I've got a very, very crazy schedule, a lot on my plate and a lot of different things. And I would find myself getting like a little overwhelmed in the middle of the day. And that's kind of where that came from. It's, I've really enjoyed that. Yep. One of the things that um, I struggled a lot with was uh, like the social anxiety and um, like more stuff around the future. Like I, I never really got too fixated on the past. I was always scared of what could happen. And one of the exercises that I was told by a therapist was a grounding exercise to bring me back to the present and it's something that I struggled to implement at first because it's something that like it's kind of like so easy to do it's you can do it like lifting a weight that's not heavy enough for you or you just go through the motions Mm, and so you really have to put yourself in like I'm about to do this to bring myself back to the present that's that was my personal experience and it's just using your five senses and out loud describing what's going around in your present world and so like right now filming this podcast I can say, all right, I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. I'm wearing headphones. There's a plant on the table. There's two lighting things up here. And just by doing this, I'm describing the environment around me or reminding myself that right now there's really there's nothing to be afraid of right yeah. now. But whatever it is, it's just going on in my mind. And so if I can pull myself out of that, ground myself to the present moment, then hopefully that can make some of that anxiety in the moment go away. And so that's something that I used a lot. That's interesting. My 
guess just on that is that if you're if you're kind of like stuck in like future thinking mode, right? That's something you have absolutely zero control over whatsoever. And if you're kind of stuck on it, fixated on it, trying to feel like you have any kind of control over it, that could be very harmful to yourself. But if you kind of bring yourself into something that's easier to understand, easier to feel like you at least have some kind of influence around, mm-hmm. it could just help you kind of get out of that rut, I guess. Yeah, yeah. like the, the present is very black and white. It's mm-hmm. kind of funny because this <laughs> yeah. is black and white. Yeah, the, I'm wearing white, you're wearing yeah, black. <laughs> like the, the present is, is real. Yeah. The future isn't, but we can make it very real in our minds and like it's a black or white thing that's about to happen yeah. where we can assume in this event we're either going to have A or B outcome. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like decimals. It's not just zero and one. It's you have infinite numbers and possibilities in between zero and one. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I really like about the grounding exercise to bring yourself back to the present. And so that's something that, you know, we're looking at adding that type of stuff into the Haley app. So when people are in between really their cool. sessions, we can prompt them with ways to bring them back to that present moment. Yeah, maybe like a, I don't know if this is something you have already. I actually just downloaded the app, I told you, before we got started. Um, but maybe like a like a video library of like little walkthroughs and stuff mm-hmm. like that could be pretty cool. Yep. So, um I did actually want to get into the app a little bit. I'm going to pull it up here real quick. I I would like to just kind of like hop through and have you talk me through it a little bit. Yeah. If you want to. Um, if you, so it is on both app stores now. And so, yeah. You mentioned that. And I did want to cover that a little bit too. You said it was a little bit different process. Yep. So we kicked off on the iOS app store. Um, <laughs> part of that was because Michael and I both have iPhones. Uh, a lot of, people that are in their 20s use iPhones in the US at least Android still has like way more than two thirds of the world market I didn't realize that that's yeah. pretty wild yep um, and but so, it was a little closer to home to start yeah. with that yeah yep. the bigger user base and so we kicked off an iOS uh, Michael used a tool that actually helps you launch to both Android and iOS quicker than building a native iOS and Android app Um, So we really, it was only about probably a four-week difference from launching on Android after iOS. I think I saw somewhere that you launched it on iOS on World Mental Health Day. Is that right? I think that's when we announced it. Yeah, that's when you announced it. Okay, and then the the, um, actual launch came a little bit later, right? Yep. Very cool. So, yeah, I created an account, um, and so it starts out on the, and I'll probably do like an overlay on the, the video of like a just kind of like a screen recording of it or something yeah. but it starts out on this page where you've got a journal you've got kind of a discovery area um is that discover area just kind of like the, kind of the launching point where you kind of zone in on like what you're looking to find out more about yeah so the the search bar at the very top is our search engine that's at for haley.com so if whatever you type in there you're going to get content in but if there's common topics that people are going to go to frequently, like we have the workplace, meditation, family, that is just like a quick filter of our search engine. So if you click on anxiety, it's just like we kind of mm. filtered for anxiety in our search engine. Yeah, this is great. This is so easy. I mean, it's it really – I nerd out a little bit on, <laughs> U, on UI and UX, and it, it really is a great UI, UX. Like it's very intuitive, very simple. I mean, you just kind of go on. Um, it takes you immediately to very easy to find resources. So that's great. 
Yeah, one of the, the things are great that call. we are always trying to improve is a end user's understanding that you're navigating the internet. Mm-hmm. So like once you click on anxiety and you're given some features, like do you want to see the newest video or written? And then you click on one of the results, you're now on the web. Yeah. And so I think we, we do have uh, some of the UI to improve to let people know like, hey, this isn't a Haley URL. You're now on this other domain. It's just inside of our app. Um, but it, it is incredibly easy to get to whatever article that you click on in one or two clicks. And then just right to the right of that is your journaling. So you can go ahead, whether it's uh, written, you can add an attachment. You can just do an audio journal if you don't actually want to type. Uh, and then you can track whatever your emotions are. So if you say, hey, you know, today I was feeling pretty stressed. Well, it's pretty easy to then go to the other tab, type that into the search engine and find content for that. Yeah. So eventually we want to get to the point where we're making recommendations around kind of like what emotions you're selecting for your journal entry and stuff. That's it today. What are a couple of the biggest pieces of feedback that you've gotten from clinicians and other uh, mental health professionals along the way that have shaped the process the most for you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes around the type of content that we add. And that was a lot of what I learned joining Twitter Mm -hmm. and talking with a therapist on there, doing all of those interviews with them is what goes too far for an individual to do on their own and what type of content can go too far. So that was one of the really big pieces of feedback that we got to make sure, like, we s- kind of stay in our space where yeah. we belong. Is that where you got the uh, avoiding the prescriptive? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Um, and then we actually just worked with my old university, um, University of Akron. One of their MBA classes did, uh, like, a marketing research project on us. And to do some of the things with the app, they interviewed some clinicians and there were some things around very similar, like don't let the end user get into that like self-therapy type of mode. Let it be self-regulatory. So if they are in therapy or even out of therapy, if they do get triggered by something or they are having a moment where they need to kind of come back into that present moment, add those types of things don't put in things where a patient's going to come out of it, go to therapy and say, hey, this app told me I have ADHD. Can you help me with that? Right. Yeah, just in general, avoiding the prescriptive. I I really like that point. Yep. What are um, a few of the biggest misconceptions that you see being talked about in the mental health space right now? Ooh, I, I don't think it's so much of a misconception, but I think if you're not in the healthcare industry like mental health is so frustrating because yeah. if you want an appointment, you're not going to get one for a while unless you have the benefit of being able to pay over 150 an hour or you have um, great insurance that's going to cover something. You, you're probably going to be on a wait list. Yeah. And if you are or you do have the even the benefit of calling to cash pay practices – um, I know a therapist that had to call 20 therapists him, to see a therapist for himself, and he got one call back. Wow. Because there's such high demand that if you reach out to a therapist, somebody's not going to reach out to you. And that is very frustrating for somebody who is in that moment of need, and the people that are supposed to help them aren't. Yeah. They're like, it's, it's a horrible UX to get from the healthcare world. Mm-hmm. And. What I want people to know is that 
the experience is like that because there's so many other people just like you and that you are not alone in this and that healthcare providers, therapists are doing the best that they can. And the reason that so many are cash pay is because healthcare insurance is so difficult to work with as a therapist where if I have Cigna and I go to a therapist that takes Cigna or United Healthcare, Aetna, Blue Cross, whatever it is, and they submit a claim to insurance, they might spend up to like a couple months fighting with that insurance company to make sure they get the $110 that they're supposed to get paid on that because they're an independent clinician and it's easy to just let's deny your claim. And Is that because it's kind of the newest thing to the conversation around health? And it's maybe a little grayer than some of the other like areas of health. A little bit it, the, I, more I, difficult. I, I like the it's grayer um, kind of metaphor or analogy because if somebody walks into a hospital with a broken arm, it's pretty easy to see on an X-ray. Exactly. You, you can use an X-ray to prove to insurance we got to put a cast on on this person. Mm-hmm. But how does an independent therapist go prove to insurance? hey, this person really needs to be seen, you know, 12 plus weeks in a row and you're going to pay me 100 plus a week for this. And yeah. so one probably of the, just observations, which is unfortunately subject to subjectivity. Right. And insurance companies use um, medically necessary as a reason to deny claims in mental health care. Like, yeah, sorry, mm. this isn't medically necessary. Jeez. And like mental health has a unproportionate amount of claims denied for that reason and like the people that review claims are not therapists yeah so we have health insurance employees that do not have the licensed credentials of a therapist saying yeah this isn't medically necessary well who in the world are you to say that rather than the therapist actually talking to this client and so now there are a lot of uh companies and startups out there now that are creating these network of therapists who this company owns the relationship with the insurance companies so they can actually handle all that annoying, like busy work dealing with the insurance companies, but then also educate clinicians on the best way to use their technology and submit claims to insurance. So the claims have a higher chance of getting accepted. So the reason that so many kind of help bridge that gap. And so the reason so many therapists are cash pay is just because it it would be too hard for them to sustain their living just taking insurance. I mean, you have a a knee replacement might, you know, cost $20,000 and insurance to pay that out. A therapist might save somebody's life and get $500 over five weeks. Like health insurance was not designed for mental health or to focus on the value of a life. Health insurance was designed to cover the cost of hospitals. And in many cases, it's not. So mental health in many cases is preventative, right? Whereas a lot of other areas of health are very after the fact. Like the broken arm example that you mentioned, that's after the fact of something happening. Mental health, in many cases, needs, in my opinion, needs to be like a preventative measure because you you want to stop the issue and, and help solve the issue before something bad happens. The, the really hard thing about mental health and, and being preventative is the like what the healthcare world refers to as the social determinants of health. Like, what's your access to safe housing look like? What's your access to healthy, consistent food supply? Like if you don't have those things, like your mental health is probably going to be struggling too. And so mental health is such a 
community-based thing. It is such a lifestyle-based thing too, where it is incredibly hard to stay in front of. And something that I've become incredibly passionate about lately is looking at how communities have operated over time to the like Native American tri- tribal communities to you know Facebook working on the metaverse. Like, is that an innovation that's actually good for society? Uh, there's a project in Saudi Arabia right now called The Line. I've heard about this. Yeah, this I, is fascinating. I actually know somebody who's on that team. Really? Uh, working on it. Do you want to give a brief description of what the line is? This probably is, a good idea. This is so cool. So, I might even like overlay like a picture of it or something. So there, I, I think it's like a government organization. Uh, Neom is working on this project called the Line, which is like it's it's several kilometers kilometers long, um, where they are basically building like a vertical city, mm-hmm. and in like the middle of the desert. Yeah, in like the middle of Saudi Arabia. But the goal is to make it like super environmentally sustainable. Very community-based living, um, safe. I mean, it looks like a very interesting place to live, but it's so unique to how we have lived for the past couple hundred years in our urban, rural, super urban, large cities. I'm like, how is that actually going to impact the mental health of people? Because is that the community style that we're going to be used to living into where you can get to anything you need in a five-minute walk? Honestly, I think there could be some mental health benefits to it. But when I think about something like the metaverse, where we've only had access to that type of digital environment for maybe the past, you know, even like I think Skype was one of the earliest video tools that came out. And it was either came out like 2003, I think. And so is going further into a digital environment actually good for our mental health? It's a very complex question, and I could tell you have opinions on it. I actually had that on my notes to ask you about, so I'm glad you kind of like yeah. naturally got there anyway. I think I saw one of your posts about the metaverse recently, and that's what gave me the idea to want to talk about it. What are your thoughts on it? When you, I, I think an easy way to think about it is – video games and how much video games have done for people yeah. um, platforms like Twitch I can when I hop on the Xbox I play Madden Call of Duty Formula One and I can go on Madden talk to uh, like literally like the other week I was playing with a guy in Detroit and we were just chatting during the game and like that is incredible that technology has allowed us to connect with strangers over yeah. similar topics and video calls are the same way now we can do work via zoom or whatever other video chat platform and be productive now whether that's actually good for our mental health in the long term is something i don't know that there's enough evidence on is a 11 year old that gets bullied at school better off for being able to go home and play video games and find a community that he's accepted in absolutely Mm -hmm. But is that video game a solution or is it a band-aid to a greater communal problem? Mm. And that's what I think my hesitation with the metaverse is, is that is the metaverse and going into this like full VR type world just a band-aid to the in real life problems that are our communities today? And that's why I'm more excited about augmented reality and adding digital things to our real world because I Mm -hmm. think we can have a lot of enhancements there. But I really hesitate to say that 
the virtual world becoming more important than the real world in front of us is a healthy thing. I agree. Have you seen Ready Player One? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a scary concept when you see that whole movie play out and it shows the real world. It's this barren wasteland, basically, and it's just it's completely unimportant. Yep. It's uh, it's scary to think about that because you do. I think you lose a lot of real human interaction. I mean, you can get you can get forms of it through the digital, but you, I don't think you ever get the entire thing. And yep. I think it's both are important. And my like my LinkedIn post today was around uh, humans. There, there's research that we are not that good at knowing how much we are going to like a future experience or how much we're going to like it. And social media has only been around for the past decade and a half. The internet, only the past four or five decades. And when we have tens of thousands of years of human existence, it's very hard to say going more digital is better for us. Like we have yeah. not had the time to evolve into our brains in truly enjoying this. And so I'm starting to spend more and more of my time reading up on research that has to do with communities and ways people live together that actually produces more like mentally healthy communities. What are some criteria that you look for in those communities as far as the actual outcomes on mental health? Yeah, I, I think there, I mean, history is the the best thing to look for. Uh, going back to the point that like humans are really bad at knowing what we like and how much we're going to like something. And I'm reading up a, on a book right now that talks about the mental health in Native American communities and tribes. And if you go farther back in history, it, it is very difficult to ever find instances of suicide due to mental health reasons in the Native American communities. You fast forward to today and look at everything that Native American communities have been put through in America. Native Americans are, um, actually have one of the more higher rates of suicide because of all the trauma that they've been put through due to the colonization of America and getting forced off of their land. Yeah. And so when we look at communities over time, the relationships between the people in those communities, the how they spend their time. It's fascinating to see how countries like America and wealthier countries have much greater rates of reported struggling with mental illness. And I think, one, there's a little bit of, yeah, then if you're in a wealthier country, you have the privilege to talk about mental health and struggling with that and going to healthcare. And if you're in a, you know, an environment where you don't really have any resources and you're constantly focused on living, there is that conversation of, of mm -hmm. course, you're not going to have higher reporting. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Right. Um, and so I think it comes down to a lot of pieces around the community and how people react to one another, communicate with one another, treat one another. So it's something that I've really just gotten started into, can't really speak on a whole ton. But I think over the next couple of decades, we're going to see um, a big push into digital. And I think we're going to see a really big push back into more traditional ways of living that are much more focused on our mental well-being. Yeah, just figuring out how to have both coexist yeah. without this kind of disparity of, of difficulties that's coming with it. Another thing I wanted to talk about is, so, and kind of in the same vein, um, what are some other areas of research that you've done that have really fascinated you and what have been some of your biggest takeaways? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. Um, 
I mean, performance is something that fascinates me because of my athletic background. And of course, just being a professional, there is a lot on like fixed versus growth mindset. And something that I've, when I've interviewed candidates for roles, um, it's something that I really look for is that growth mindset and curiosity. And when I talk with um, performance coaches, uh, I actually am very fortunate to know like the director of, I don't know his exact title, but he's like, he is the clinician for the Toronto Raptors. Oh, wow. Um, He is one of the smartest people that I've ever had the chance to meet. Um, Alex, if you're seeing this, hello. And he shared some comments on a fixed and growth mindset and how it's actually very important to have both of them hmm. because okay. it's, it's, it's more realistic too. Right. And real I, quick, how would you describe the differentiation between the mm-hmm. two kind of as a contextual piece of getting into this conversation? So fixed mindset is and when in reference to yourself is this is how I am and I don't have the ability to change this. Mm, okay. Um, to put it into a physical trait, once you you know reach a certain age in your late teens or early twenties, your height your height is fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, fixed mindset, of course, is more more mental. Now, growth mindset is of course the exact opposite. It's I have the ability to improve this. I have the ability to change this. And so, when it comes to performance, um, there's different schools of thought around. Do you focus in on your strengths? Do you improve your weaknesses? And being able to merge a fixed and growth mindset is understanding that these weaknesses are probably not ever going to turn into my true natural strengths. I can improve them, but that's never going to be my strongest thing. So why would I spend 100% of my time on those? My strengths, I can continue to get better at. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Gary V actually does a really good job at talking about this. He, he blends your physical traits and, and mental traits into the conversation. But he says, you know, as hard as I wanted to be a quarterback for the New York Jets, I'm never going to be that because if you just look at him, yeah. he's like, I'm not the physical body type to be a quarterback of an NFL team, yeah. but I can buy one. Yeah. And so he honed in on that growth mindset around what his business capabilities were. And now he has, you know, Vayner Media, Vayner Sports, his entire empire. And I think that is a beautiful example of a fixed and growth mindset of you have to be realistic about yourself. And I think Kobe Bryant is a tremendous example of growth mindset. Um, Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school basketball team and realizing you just put in the hours and now he's the greatest of all time. And that's a whole other conversation. Um, but that's something that I find fascinating is uh, understanding what my strengths, weaknesses are and where I should put more of my time. Love that. And um, kind of want to go back to just talking about, you know, companies in general, businesses in general for a second. I've seen a little bit of, of things that you've posted about as it relates to employers and how they kind of interface with their employees. Mm-hmm. What are some challenges that you think employers are facing um, at the helm of companies and as it relates to digital and mental health? Yeah, it's a very hard time for companies in this market right now because of the financial pressures that are put on them. I mean, everybody from Stripe to Lyft to mental health companies themselves are laying off people right now. 
and uh, plus Twitter laying off about half their company now that Elon Musk uh, fulfilled his acquisition of them. And you see how these different companies handle the layoffs and some that are much better showcases of leadership and some not so much. And with the rise of mental health conversations, with the rise of you know having to accept different perspective, which is good and we should have done all along, um, companies are now forced more and more to put mental health at the forefront at a time when it's not the financially best thing for the business. And I still don't think most companies are there. You you go into most companies today, mental health will probably be one of the employee benefits that is lessened in time of financial struggles or it's the women's health benefits that get cut when a company is really struggling unfortunately Mm -hmm. so i think employers are now having to accept that the cost per employee is higher and that might mean restructuring or reorg layoffs and the startup and vc excitement over like the past decade has kind of pushed companies into operations that aren't sustainable and i think a lot of employers are struggling with that right now and that's why they're laying people off is they've tried to hire more people than they can really sustain and with the now push to go into profitability with a tough market employers are really struggling with how do we do that the best yeah just falls to the wayside far too often yep going back to how new of a global conversation it is it's it can feel like an afterthought a lot of times but i i think in my opinion more and more is that it should be at the forefront because it does it can be the the root cause of so many other things and if it's not addressed yeah and a lot of the employee assistance programs that are out there actually cover mental health like visits for a employee's children or their spouse too that's awesome and there is research that a kids mental health will affect how your their parent your employee performs at work Ooh, i mean and any stats you can share from that that I, come I, to mind i don't off the top of my head yeah. uh, i do know that the economic impact is in the billions for the united states when it comes around wow. mental health and a lot of it's lost productivity yeah i mean think about that your kid is struggling with your mental health that's like your number one thing in life you're going to put time into your children if you are what extreme example you're in the middle of a work day and you hear that your kid went into the principal's office for some like egregious thing that happened because of something that might be going on in their Mm -hmm. personal life yep exactly or if that employee has a spouse who is severely struggling with their mental health they're going to care to that spouse's needs and now that they're at home and working from home, they have more ability to do so, which is great for that relationship. And so with people working from home more, I do agree that there is greater opportunity for people to not work nine to five, but that's fine. Like we don't need to work a strict nine to five work day. Like get your work done in the hours you can. Mm-hmm. Like we don't exist to work and make money for companies. We exist to be humans, find what makes us happy, find a purpose in life. And I, I think companies really in the United States are being forced to accept this. My fiance was fortunate enough to live in Europe for a little bit of her life. And the culture 
of how companies see family and time off is so much different over there. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with that more. And also in the same vein, I mean, you talked about how we're not created to work nine to five, really. I don't think anyone just wakes up and flashes into this super focus mode that lasts from nine to five. In reality, it's ups and downs. You might wake up and be focused right away at like seven and then all of a sudden, a couple hours later, you need to take a little break, do something, work out, take a walk, take your dog out or something. And then on the in the same vein, you might get to well after five, you might hit some kind of second wave at like 7 p.m. where you want to walk, knock out a couple hours of work and then kind of get ready for bed afterwards. It's uh, I think a lot more flexibility is going into it. And I'm really glad that this is a part of like of the conversation around employees and employers. That's something I've seen you talk about a little bit. And the work-life balance of that is really hard to navigate because if you are one of the management and leadership in a company, you want your employees to have work-life balance. So that can partially feel like I don't want to email my employees at eight Mm o'clock. But what if your employees like that? And now there's like no boundaries between what are work hours and what are at home hours. Yeah. So that's another really tough thing for companies with work-life balance right now, because the work-life balance isn't just nine to five and outside of that, you don't work. It's accepting kind of sometimes all hours of the day and and being patient when it is that 3 p.m. and you're not going to hear from somebody for a little bit. Like me personally, I love like the 8 and 9 p.m. time frame. Like for some reason, that's like when my brain is like ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. I find myself, I'm, like I said, business owner as well. And so the lines do blur a lot more, especially if you're kind of at the helm of a company. Sometimes I'll find myself like just super focused at 10 p.m. And I've worked from like 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. before because I just get like a flash (laughs) of some idea and I'm like, I don't want to go to bed right now. I've got an awesome idea and I like, I feel like I could knock out a ridiculous amount of productivity in these few hours. What are some challenges that you've found with that as kind of being in that space as well? Um, it, It can get really easy to put too much of the time and effort into one area of your life. Um, like in, in college, I ran a four, three, nine, 40. Wow. Um, I was eight, 9% body fat for probably like two or three years. Wow. And, um, that is not a metric 99.9% of the human population should care about. Mm -hmm. Um, but as a high level athlete, it's something that you constantly look at. Yeah. And now that I'm, post the my prime being an athlete I, I don't get to work out as much I don't get to put as much time into that and like that's something that I've personally struggled with a lot because I've recognized I have not put as much time into my personal health and what foods I'm eating and exercise because I've spent so much time on like work and the professional side of things and so I think that's a little bit of that work-life balance where when work can be at 7 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 9 p.m., where is the the family time, the workout time, and everything that you need in between all of there? Because you have to navigate what your spouse, what your kids all need too. And so that's really tough. It is. I can relate to that so much. I actually was a personal trainer for a while. And so similar, I really treated my, my career as like I was an athlete. Like it was a huge part of lending credibility to what I was doing is being in shape and something I took very seriously still do. I've found that same challenge is it's, it's so much easier now that I'm in like in business and doing other things to wake up and want to just immediately get started on that. And 
then many times like trying to juggle a social life with that as well i'll get through an entire day of work where i started right away and then i'm like oh well i've got something i want to do with friends tonight so there's going to be no workout today it's a tough thing to to kind of find a balance with what are some things that have i mean it sounds like it's something that you struggle with as well what are some things that you have found work well for kind of establishing that balance in in all areas yes i mean one i had to accept that the I wasn't going to really get back to that level of athleticism and that's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Um, and that was a big like step for me to say my physical fitness is not who I am. It's not my identity. Um, Cause I remember you mentioned very early on in our conversation, it was pretty much your entire identity at yeah. one point. Like you felt like it was. Yep. Yep. And so the more I got into work in my professional life, accepting that fitness wasn't my identity and also work wasn't my identity either. And so one of the things that's helped was kind of incorporating a routine of it's going to be, this is the time of the day I'm going to work out if I can. And so, you know, lately that's navigated to about like three to five times a week. And it's okay if it's a week is great. three, it's okay if a week is five, um, but it's just not going to get to seven. And yeah. as long as I can stay away from it being, you know, one or zero, then I'm still doing well and still taking care of myself. And so it's just, it's been a challenge to just accept things are more of a balance. Just changing the benchmark, lowering it a little bit to a, a reasonable level. Yep. What are some other areas that you find challenges in and, and have been able to kind of succeed? And you kind of mentioned like the the relational things, you know, you have a fiance, that's obviously something you want to be able to devote time to. What are some, some things that have worked well in that area and maybe other areas that involve yeah. relationships? Um, <laughs> starting a company is probably one of the hardest things to do if you're in a serious relationship. I have a serious girlfriend and we every once in a while will break out our calendars and schedule dates and like schedule time together. Yep. Um, we, we've had to do a variety of things together between her work, mine to make sure that we are putting enough effort into the relationship and for a lot of relationships now, you see the movies and the shows and there's this like romanticized idea around what a relationship should be like. And it yeah. makes unrealistic expectations about like how easy things should flow. And that's not how life works. And yeah. so it is a lot of hard work that you put into it. It's it's more communication than people think. And so, yeah, I mean, we've had to do the same thing where it's, it's Sunday and you're talking about, okay – the evenings this week, let's plan them out. What's our evenings where it's just us? What's mm-hmm. our evening with friends? What's our evenings where it's okay to work? Sometimes it's we get to the point in evenings and it's like, all right, the rest of the evening is a no work time. Yep. Um, so it is a lot of us setting boundaries of when our time is just for us. Yeah, just having those boundaries. Kind of the common thread, if you think about it, is you were talking about time blocking with mm-hmm. certain things, just setting those boundaries, time blocking. What are um, kind of in the same vein of just like things that work for you? What are what are like the the biggest blocks of things that you feel like need to be in order to contribute to better mental health? Like just in like easy everyday actionable things that anyone can do. I think if if you're looking at your life, is it a life that's exciting for you personally? Um, 
and with that, a lot of people need to feel connected to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, Relationships and community are a huge part of our mental health. And if you don't have that block, it's probably something that you're going to feel lonely or you have some social anxiety around. Um, The other thing is purpose. Like if if we wake up every day and, you know, let's take maybe our last box good. We spend every day with our friends. What are you doing? Like why, why are you waking up every day? What are you moving towards? I think we do need something that we feel motivated by and purposed by. That might be like our kids or our significant Mm -hmm. other. And we have this drive around family. It's Um, different for everyone, I think. Exactly. And that's why we all do so many different professions because we get fulfilled by different things. And for some of us, we are perfectly okay with a profession just being that. And then we get fulfilled by what's at home. And so the profession is a way for us to provide for those at home. Man, are you trying to make a clip right now? (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. It's profession session. (laughs) Um, And then I think, you know, one of the the final things is the the physical health side of it because Mm -hmm. so much of our mental health is tied to physical health. I mean, the amount of neurons that we have in our gut. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. you have a horrible diet. Of course, it impacts your mental health. Yeah. Um, You don't ever exercise. Yeah. I mean, we did, uh, again, we did a research project with that University of Akron class, and they surveyed more than like 2,000 people around what people do for self-care. And like the number one thing was just walking, getting outside, playing with their dog. Um, so I think community, friendships, relationships, having some sort of like purpose or drive to what you do and s- participating in healthy activities are all really big part, really big parts of living a mentally healthy life. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to the, uh, the health example, great one. I kind of in that same struggle that I was talking about earlier of like kind of not, not working out as much as I was used to in the past. Mm-hmm. I've noticed with that thing in particular, there will be days where I go maybe like three days in a row not being able to get a workout because of work. And I just notice that I'm more irritable. I'm more anxious. Like it leads into everything. That, I mean, if I don't get time with friends for a few days in a row, same kind of thing. I'm more anxious. I resent whatever the thing that I feel like is pulling from that is I think it really is just so important to really understand those big blocks and do what you can to address those and delayed gratification um again like my disclaimer I'm, I'm not a therapist but living a mentally happy joyful sustainable life isn't about instant gratification I love sweets all my friends my fiance my parents will tell you I love sweets I would be instantly gratified with like some cheesecake factory and having that for dinner every night. Sure, yeah. But in the long Sounds great. <laughs> in the long term, <laughs> yeah. oh am I gonna regret that? Yeah. And so that's a really big part of figuring out like what makes you happy in the long term. And for yeah. me, it, it it's working out, it's the balance, and it's not giving in to what I always would really enjoy in this moment. Yeah. Do you think a big part of you mentioned like kind of uh, more developed nations struggling so much with mental health. Do you think a lot of that comes from how much, how accessible instant gratification has become? Yes. I actually put uh, this question out to therapists online around the number of options we have in our life now. Um, And there is a diminishing return when it comes to the amount of options that we have. And the more options mean more options for instant gratification. Mm -hmm. And 
we want options in our life because it means we have opportunity, whether that's opportunity for growth, whether that's just more change in our life, but then it gets to a point where it's really diminishing. And a very easy example um, that you and I can can relate to probably is if I ask my fiance, hey, where do you want to go out to eat tonight? That can be a long conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you open up Open Table, you open up Google Maps, you can talk for hours. Yeah. Or you say, hey, do you want to go to A, B, or C restaurant tonight? Mm-hmm. You know, she's going to end up picking one of those. Yep. Both of you are going to be happy about where you're going. And that's perfectly okay. Yeah. Why paralyze yourself? Because there's 10,000 restaurants in the greater Orlando area. Paralysis by analysis. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I like that. Another thing I wanted to kind of talk about is um, kind of going back to the social media stuff. We talked about this a little off air just a second ago. Um, be, you were talking about getting your be real for yeah. the day. And I think this is so cool. This has been this has become so quickly such a big part of pop culture mm-hmm. and social media uses be real. I have one. Many of my friends have them. It's I, I have a blast with it. Um, and it sounds like you enjoy it too. You'd said that you had some thoughts on it as it relates to mental health that were really interesting. I wanted you to get into that a little bit. Yeah, I think this is definitely coming a bit from personal experience, but it is the app that I think contributes the best to my mental health when it comes to like strictly social media apps. Uh, when I compare it to a Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I think, is the, the photo has to come from your camera. Yeah. Your camera roll. Yeah. And so I, a lot of people look at the name of the app and are like, okay, I have to be real with this. You know, I get my two-minute window. That is not what Be Real is about. Like, that's mm. totally a marketing ploy. They do not care if you post in that two-minute window. Yeah. All they care is that you're taking a picture of that day from your camera what's actually in front of you at some point. I've never given much thought to that. There's so many implications when you dig into that, right? You can't edit it at all. Yep. You could do as many retakes as you possibly want. You could retake it 30 times. It's still going to have to be a real picture from your camera at that very moment. Exactly. And I, I probably only have 20, 25 people that I'm, I'm friends with on Be Real. They are a mixture of people that are my closest friends today. They're a mixture of people that I was like kind of friends with 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And one of those people that I was like acquaintances with 10 years ago sent me a happy birthday this year for the first time in probably like nine years. That's cool. But we've been t- connected on Be Real for a couple of months, but they're, they're yeah. literally seeing what I'm doing every day with mm-hmm. no filter. And it does create a little bit of this like connection to one another. We're like, okay, it's like eight o'clock on a, a Thursday. You're watching Thursday night football. The next day I see what you're doing. And so I think Be Real has done a good job of actually creating this like little sense of community and connection between people because it has to be taken right now with no filter. It can't be from your camera roll. I like that. On that note of you, you mentioned you have maybe 20, 25 people on it. This is interesting because I have talked about this with friends and with my girlfriend who she said she keeps hers kind of purposely low. What 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 are your thoughts on kind of keeping that that uh be real list a little lower and do you have a strategy behind that is it just kind of like how it shook out like do you think that there's something to keeping that friend list a little smaller on be real? Yeah, I think 
It started out just because it's a newer app, and there's yeah. I don't have a ton of people that it takes have, a while to build yeah, up. Like right? I, I, realistically, I'd probably get to another like fifteen people. I'd really care to add if like yeah. every one of my friends got it. Um, but even when I look back at my Instagram over time, uh, I've gotten an Instagram deleted my entire account before restarted over. And then every you know few months, you go through like a purge of like people that you follow that you don't really need to anymore. And I think that goes back to like kind of like my thoughts around community and like mm-hmm. what is the right size of community that's best for our mental health. Um, Sounds we, like I could see it going back to that like concept of um, a point of diminishing returns. Yeah, 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 100%. Like we live in a time where we can access information about anywhere in the world. And I think that's great because it gives us the ability to care about a lot, but it also puts us in scenarios where we don't need all of this triggering information all of the time. Is it, it's absolutely tragic that, you know, a a horrible event happens in another continent, but is it healthy for me to get fed that every single day, you know? A hundred years ago, I would have no way of knowing Ever a simple it. event unless it was like a, a world war. We don't need to constantly be exposed to all of the stimuli that we are. We were not designed to. I mean, if you look at humans a couple thousand years ago, um, we really only had access to the information that was necessary to keep us alive in the moment. Now, CNN will blast us with notifications about tragic events around the world every hour of the day. I was going to get to that. That's uh, I catch a lot of flack for this, but I really do not consume the news whatsoever in any way, shape or form, aside from just like secondhand through friends and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think there's obviously things I miss out on and it's good to know about certain things for different reasons, but I found that it was just not good for me. It like, it was a bummer most of the time. It's, I think it catches the most attention when it's negative. So that Mm -hmm. kind of becomes the, the criteria for the news in many cases. So I really try to avoid the news like the plague, honestly. Yeah, I turned off Bloomberg and CNN notifications recently uh, for very similar reasons and have even like kind of reduced my Twitter use lately for very similar reasons because Twitter is a lot of news too and current events and pop culture. And I think the great thing about the internet is it gives us access to information that we can use to speak up for others, for Mm -hmm. communities that have not been as privileged throughout history, communities that are dealing with racism. And we should care about that. But we cannot possibly, as a single individual, make our waking hours of the day about every single problem in the world. Like, we are... We're not a messiah that can possibly care for every single thing in the world. And so it is a little bit of a personal balancing act of what are the things that I can care about? Where can I make a difference in a way that's healthy for me? Because if I try to put all of like spread it, all my eggs everywhere, it's just not going to work out. Yeah, exactly. It's again, that paralysis by analysis. You're going to, if you get too caught up trying to know and have an opinion on care about address everything you won't be able to do anything yep yeah i think there's a lot of value in 
really just honing in your focus on the things that you can influence in a positive way. Right. And like for me, that was like mental health. Like I had mm-hmm. a very personal tie to it. It was a place that I wanted to make a difference in. And so by me picking mental health, it means I haven't made as much of an impact in like climate as I wanted to for the past four years. Sure. Like that's okay because it's impossible for us to do like everything. Um, and so that's, that's another thing that I would I- encourage people when they start to think about their mental health the news, what they're kind of involved in was like, you don't have to be the savior to everything is make sure you put yourself first because that's the best way to be able to take care of other people. You mentioned notification settings. I want to kind of expand on that and, and even broaden that a little bit. What are some general tips around digital use that have served you well and that you think can serve the general public well? Yeah, I think most people probably use like a very small percentage of like their phone's real capabilities yeah. in terms of like customizing notifications for every app. It's actually something we put a lot of thought into about the Haley app yeah. and letting people pick um, what time of the day they want their daily notification or weekly notification. We actually give you like 10 different options of what you want that notification to say based on like what you are going to be more motivated by. And when it comes to apps, I mean, now that the iPhone has this like sleep mode, work focus mode or just whatever, you can say like, all right, these hours of the day don't serve me these types of notifications. And it, it kind of seems like pointless at first to really play around with that. But then when you start to see like, oh, I was active on my phone for eight hours a day this week, maybe it's time to actually update that. Yeah. Um, I, I actually look probably every single week at what apps I'm spending most of my time in every day and reflect on like how I actually feel that week. And so I would suggest when people do look at the apps they spend the most of their time in, if you don't open an app that much, why are you getting notifications for it? Um, Yeah. Are the notifications triggering you in any way? Um, So yeah, I would look into the customizations that you can. I just realized something that I had not kind of put together before. I um, I post on it a lot because of the podcast, but I never scroll through TikTok, actually. And I think I miss out on some things because of that, but I also know a lot of people that really wish they scrolled on it less. Mm-hmm. And I kind of am thankful that I don't use it as much as a consumer because I think I get a lot of time back because of it. And I, for whatever reason, very early on in getting it, turned my notifications completely off. I do not see any notifications unless I click into it. Mm -hmm. And so I go on to it on my own time when I want to. And I think, yeah, just limiting your notifications strategically is huge. Have you watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix? Great documentary. Yeah, it really is. And they they go into the like A-B testing of notifications to where, like, I think Facebook was the example that they used in the documentary, but these companies go through tremendous experiments to figure out, you know, based on your specific demographic, psychographic, what type of notification is going to get you to most likely open up this app. And so if you leave them on and you do not open the app, they are literally playing with your mind to test, like, where are we going to get Nick to open up this app? And so just turn it off. (laughs) It's crazy. There's so much like that. I don't remember if it was this documentary or something else that I heard this on. Another example, Netflix, and we were talking about thumbnails off air earlier. 
Netflix actually serves you a different thumbnail based on some of your demographic information and psychographic information. So they will actually pick the the face of the character that has kind of shown data-wise to be huh. the most specified to you as an individual user. Even like within one account, your individual like set yeah. of users, you know, how if you've got like a family account, you've got maybe one for your brother, sister, and you, mother, brother, uh, father, whatever. Um, within those individual accounts, you, for one different show or movie, might get served different thumbnails based on your demographic and psychographic information. Did not know that. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Once you hear that, you could never go back. Yeah. You start thinking about, like, why did they choose this thumbnail for me? What does this say about me? <laughs> it's, there's so many examples like that. It's so crazy. Going back to the um, the sleep mode and, th- and stuff earlier, I love those features. Those are fantastic. Oh, the other suggestion is, um, and I'm, I, I really don't know any of my friends that do this, but your iPhone has automations so you can set things to happen when you open certain apps. And so I have an automation that when I open the Haley app to journal, my phone immediately goes into do not disturb. You That's can, crazy. You can do that for any app. Wow. You, you can do it for when you close your apps. You can set automations for, you know, texting certain people. Um, and so when it's kind of like time for me to get ready for bed, I get my Haley notification at like 9.15. Yeah. I open it up. My phone goes into do not disturb. I have my sleep schedule set from like 10 to 7. Mm-hmm. Then I have an hour of like wind down time in there. So I have my phone like really scheduled out to like make sure that when it gets to those later hours of the evening, I'm not getting notifications that are kind of going to like trigger like some anxiety. Yeah, I think the um, the the timing of notifications is something I have not given a lot of thought to. I I limit my notifications a lot, but the timing of it, I think, is genius. And I mean, an example of something that served me well, I have um, just a cal- like a recurring calendar thing that I would say I actually adhere to maybe 20% of the time, but it's more than zero. But it literally just at 7.30 p.m. every night, it says, work slows down, do something relaxing. And like I said, 20% of the time, I will see that at the right time, and I say, okay, yeah, I should probably do something relaxing, and it's more than zero. I think there's so much, like, your, your phone and, and digital use can be destructive, and there can be difficult things around that, but especially with all these features that you mentioned that Apple has and so many other things, Google, et cetera, there's so many things you can do to be intentional around that, right? Yeah, I, I would not be surprised to see another iOS update or maybe it's an app that somehow figures out a way to like block all notifications and then let you completely customize them. And so like one of the things that we did hmm. very first with Haley was like, I don't want to A-B test people to figure out what gets them to, you know, open up the app the most and yeah. what triggers them to open it. Like, what is actually going to get people to want to open it to journal, to do something productive? Mm. And so we did a very non-scientific Instagram poll around which of these three notification messages would get you to care to journal. And about half the people wanted a more like sports coach type messaging of like you said you would start yes or tomorrow and Mm. it's tomorrow yeah well the other half of the people wanted let's walk through what happened today Mm. those are two incredibly different like personalities almost and it's fascinating that it's like half and half yeah yeah Yeah, it, it was just about half and half and i think 
that's what our phones should really start to turn into is more of like how can we use this to optimize ourselves Mm -hmm. and right now this is totally about how digital companies can optimize us it really is yeah i i've got to give a lot of credit to apple that we're talking about with just the amount of features that they've kind of gone out of their way to bring into the the ios to help mitigate that any other ones that come to mind that we haven't touched on the automations thing is great i've only ever used it to to do like funny little like party tricks but like there, there's so many things you can do around that question um you know i think one of the other monitoring screen time is great you mentioned that yeah if you don't have your sleep and wake up schedule yeah um i have that set up so it's i think 7 a.m on weekdays and like 8 30 on weekends i'm mm-hmm. sleeping in till like noon on the weekend and totally messing up my week that one is great for a couple reasons i had a friend that uh, suggested that to me, and I've never gone back since. I have mine on as well. And it not only does it uh, set your alarm as a recurring thing like that, so you don't have to think about doing your alarm every night, but it also puts you into basically do not disturb at a certain time around your sleep schedule. And you can kind of set that exactly around the parameters that you want. Mine, I think, is like a couple hours before my like bedtime. Yeah. And then you can really be intentional about your sleep. The other thing I really like um, is how you can, like, group apps into one space. Yeah. And I've, like, grouped all my social media apps into one little thing. And now it takes me two clicks to get into Facebook Mm. rather than one. And I can even label, like, this group of apps as unproductive or it's social media or I can give it some name. So maybe when I go to click on it, I'm like, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't. Um, So I think think there's a lot that people kind of do just to play with the UI of how they experience their phone. Love that. Love that. I might just go ahead and take us into our last couple questions here. Um, anything else kind of before I get into the final runway here that comes to mind that we haven't gone over that you'd like to get into? Um, no, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about how we can kind of create like a, a healthy life for ourselves, um, And just a reminder for everybody, like it's so individual. Yeah. Um, we all come from our own background, uh, different situations growing up. We're going through different things right now. We have different goals in the future. And if you are struggling right now, there, it's like, you know, don't be afraid to reach out for help. Everybody yeah. hears that. Then people get afraid, like, well, I do, and I don't get anything in return. Um, I am incredibly sorry for the people that are going through that. It is incredibly hard sometimes right now to get the help with mental well-being. And what I would say is don't give up because there will be a time when the right resource comes along. You will find that help for your mental health and the tomorrow you will thank you for it. Um, So I think just one of the final things I would leave people with is the help is out there um, and it'll come. Yeah, love that. And I'll probably ask you again, like after these final couple questions, what else you'd like to leave the audience with? But that's a fantastic message. And it's very cool to have come from the beginning of our conversation and your personal story with that and how that that's something you went through and were able to triumph through. And now it's become something that you're helping others with. I think that's really fantastic. It really is. So the first question I have for you is, and I'll use kind of the, the, getting into digital and mental health and working in it in the first place as your starting point here. But if you could go back in time and talk to a younger Nick 
having the wisdom and the experience that you've gained over the time that you've worked in the space, what are a couple things you would tell them to do differently? That's a good question. Um, you know, when I asked like one of my first really great mentors for advice after like my first year at mend, um, and for like honest feedback, he was like, don't be afraid to go slower. I think I, from the very beginning was like, all right, I graduated college in three years. I wanted to get out into the real world, get promoted so fast. Um, one of the things that I definitely tell my younger self was any timeline that you have is probably built upon like some expectation of society that you have to live up to. And whether you get something done at like 23, 25, 27 is so arbitrary because what happens if you, you know, live till 70, 80 or 90? Does what you do at 23, 25 and 27 really matter? Yeah. Your life ends 20 years in a, a different time frame. Um, and so I definitely tell my younger self, like, you know, don't sweat about that kind of stuff. Um, if you continue to live a life driven by the values and morals that you want to stick to forever, the things are going to come at the right time. And I just turned 25, like a, a little over a month ago. And one of my good friends asked me, like, what lesson did you learn in, in this past year? And if you do something for the right reasons, it can never be taking a step back. Um, and with that, I really meant around starting my own company. We're not a VC-backed company. We're not worth millions and millions of dollars. But, like, I've had so many people just DM me about how much it's impacted their life. Someone said they spent seven hours searching Google and they couldn't find a thing. And one search, they found two articles on our platform. Wow. And so, like, building this company was all about building for the right reasons, mm -hmm. the right values. And so that can never be taking a step back in my life if I'm doing it for that reason. I think it's awesome that you're not VC-backed, actually, because it's going to – help keep you truer to the vision, the mission, whether it, I mean, it will be slower than it would be if it wasn't VC backed, but if you can really be able to stick to that vision and mission and grow it all based on the right reasons, it's going to grow right. And yeah. Gonna stay tuned. The, the VC world's a very interesting space because it, it's really helped a lot of companies and it's also really put a lot of pressure on companies to grow too fast. And so, um, there's parts of me that wish we did have that money and there's parts of me sure. that are like, yeah, I don't have anyone over my shoulder. Yeah. And I think this company in particular is one that really should be detached from those pressures mm -hmm. more than really any other. If you're talking about just like a an e-commerce product, then th th it might not apply to it. It's really just going to be more about profitability. But yep. this is about making an impact, making a difference being able to be detached from those expectations, kind of like you were hinting at with yeah. your message there, just being detached from expectations. I think that's really great. Then yeah. the other question I have for you is the show is called Profession Session. So I'm curious what it means to you personally to be a professional. Yeah, I mean, for me, I don't know whether this is to like my detriment or my benefit, but to me, being a professional has always been um, like showing up my best to something I care about and talking about mental health I think therapists have differing opinions on how much our day-to-day -day job needs to be something like we're incredibly passionate about um, and so to me just being a professional means I am putting my best into something I'm in an incredibly fortunate position that it's something that I incredibly care about 
Um, but yeah, to me, being a professional means that I show up every day, I do my best, and I'm making a difference for somebody else. It's awesome. I love it. Anything else you would want to kind of leave the audience with about Haley, about your kind of personal experiences, anything that we haven't covered yet? Download Haley. Yeah, it's, That's on, the one app, thing. it's on the App Store, so go yeah. download it. Um, on the iOS Store and the Google Play Store now. Yeah, it's actually a really unfortunate thing that so because the app is called Haley mm-hmm. if you type in H-A-L-E-Y into either app store Hilly the dating app is the first <laughs> oh, no. thing that comes no up. way yeah because uh, <laughs> it, it really just like auto corrects to that because there's not uh, really other apps it's a name and not like a like it's a personal name and not like a word per se yeah yep um, so make sure you say yes, please search for Haley and it's Haley <laughs> colon self care plus journal is what yep. it's titled up right now. It's just a green background with a white H and set your automation to put it in. Do not disturb as soon as you open it for journal yep. <laughs> <laughs> and set your notifications for the time that works for you best. Yep. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being on. This has been fantastic. Yeah. I mean, and I think so it's, I'm pretty sure it's longest podcast today. Actually. <laughs> yeah. So we got into it. This was great. Awesome. Good stuff. Awesome, man. Me. Thank you again. And this has been profession session. I've been your host, Brody Vinson. And my guest has been Nick Narrell of forhaley.com and Haley on the app store. And he mentioned how to search for it correctly. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks so much for tuning into Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vinson. Stay tuned for new episodes every week and short clips of deep dives into specific topics that I put out on different social media channels. We can be found on YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, all major podcast platforms. You can find my guest in the details of this video or podcast. And if you happen to know a young standout business owner, professional, or entrepreneur that you would think would be a good fit for profession session dm me or get in contact with me anywhere and just let me know and they could be the next to tell their story here until next time again this has been profession session stay focused stay hustling and stay networking